Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch us right here on your favorite radio station or on your favorite podcast app or now on our YouTube channel. And if you ever miss an episode, just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, I know we've got a great conversation ahead. Who are you speaking with? Well, we're really blessed to have Dr. Glenn Hubbard uh, speaking with us about his new book, The Wall and the Bridge. Dr. Hubbard is a professor of economics at Columbia Business School and a former member of the Council of Economic Advisors, which advises the president on economic issues. So really distinguished guest this week. Sounds like it's going to be a really great conversation. Remember, everyone, if you ever miss an episode, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Dr. Glenn Hubbard. He is director of the Jerome A. Chazen Institute for Global Business and Dean Emeritus at the Columbia Business School. He received his bachelor's degrees, BA and BS, summa cum laude from the University of Central Florida and holds his master's and PhD degrees in economics from Harvard University. In addition to writing more than 100 scholarly articles in economics and finance, he is the author of three popular textbooks as well as co-author of The Aid Trap, Hard Truths About Ending Poverty. His commentaries appear in Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Financial Post, and many other daily publications, as well as many appearances on television and radio. From 2001 to 2003, he was chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors, and in the corporate sector, he has served on the boards of ADP, BlackRock Fixed Income Funds, and MetLife, which where he is the chair. He's also co-chair of the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation, and he's past chair of the Economic Club of New York. Incredibly prestigious scholar and thinker and public servant, Dr. Hubbard, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program today. Great. Thanks for having me. We want to talk about your new book, The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake. And certainly um, people in the economics world always go back to Schumpeter's term, creative destruction and uh, a free market economy does do a lot of that, a lot of displacement of people and markets, and that's you know one of the ways in which it builds wealth. But it it has it has consequences, and I think that's what your book is addressing and what we want to talk about today. But let's start with this concept of the wall and the bridge. What is the wall and the bridge? Well, great question. You know, we we improve our living standards, we grow as an economy and as a society from dynamism, from innovation. And that requires openness, and that's all good. But think of it as a coin with two sides. To have that kind of economy, we also have to have disruption. Now, Adam Smith, a sort of father of economics in 1776 and the Wealth of Nations, reminded us that openness is important. You know, Smith fought the walls of mercantilism, trade barriers, governments intervening in markets, and economists have largely built on Smith ever since. The problem is walls are very easy to talk about with the public. Politicians on both the right and the left will often say, I can protect you. The alternative is a bridge. And a bridge simply gets you to somewhere or back to somewhere. I talk about preparation and reconnection. 
So say a little bit more about that bridge. That bridge seems to me, and what you're saying is that we're, and when we break down those walls um, that inhibit markets and their wealth perform, their wealth enhancement and wealth creation function, there is dislocation, there is disruption. And so we need to build bridges. So dive into that a little bit more for people. And it, it seems to me it's just a way of connecting them with more opportunities in a dynamic of dislocation and disruption. 100% right. The same Adam Smith that wrote The Wealth of Nations also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where Smith talked about what we today would call empathy. And we need to realize that we need bridges to help people compete. You know, when Smith and economists since have talked about competition, we don't talk enough about the ability to compete. Is everybody really at the same starting line? We need bridges to help people. When people get thrown out of the dynamic economy, the job I was doing, the industry was with which I was working is no longer relevant, then I need to be reconnected. In tangible terms, that means a reform of education and training and a reform of what politicians and economists call social insurance. How do we support work in the time of change? What recommendations would you have then for reforming education and, and creating mechanisms of social insurance? What are, what are some practical suggestions that you offer for that? Well, in the past, America did a good job at this. President Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, championed land-grant colleges through the Morrill Act that did two things. They prepared a larger cross-section of Americans for dynamic opportunity. At the time, the world was pivoting from agriculture to manufacturing, just as today we're making pivots. The land-grant colleges were also uh, geniusly devised because they adapted to local conditions. In today's world, we need a federal block grant for community colleges, which are really at the front lines of helping people get ready with new skills for the economy. And they're woefully underfunded in almost all states. The issue isn't making their tuition free. The issue, the issue is giving them the money to succeed. On reconnecting, we need to support low-wage work, and we need to help people get reconnected to the economy. Uh, in the book, I talk a lot about reforming labor market policy and unemployment insurance to help people make better transitions. We used to be able to do this, land-grant colleges, even the GI Bill after the Second World War, time to do it again. What seems to be some of the roadblocks in the way of, of strengthening low-income families and providing them those supports and those mechanisms of social insurance? It seems that the, the Biden child benefit was one way in which we've alleviated some child poverty and at least created a temporary assistance program for low-income and low- and middle-income families. But what's, what are the roadblocks in the way of that? Uh, I know that the, there's bi- there seems to be bipartisan opposition to actually extending things like the child benefit. So what's, what's going on there? Well, I think the first thing is to step back and say, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, classical enlightenment thinkers like Adam Smith, and I think most economists today think a big goal of the economy is mass participation, that we're all engaged in the dynamic economy. Psychologists would call that a concept of flow for an individual uh, or for a system. I think of it as more than mass participation. I think of it as mass flourishing. What holds us back from that is it's easier to tell people, I'll protect the past. I'll make it like you wanted it to be, the job you wanted to have 20 years ago or the industry you were in. That's not really on offer. And the battle in Washington isn't really capitalism versus socialism. It's really about walls. 
And the alternative is to talk to the public about bridges. The problem is to, for many politicians, that seems new. You would have to spend money to do it, but it's worth strengthening families and workers. It's also worth strengthening communities. You know, economists used to care a lot about more than just markets and the state. There's this connecting tissue in the middle of community, and we need to remember that. So it's almost as though the, the short-term dynamics of politics and appealing to voters and their sense of nostalgia or short-term gains inhibits us from having more substantive, longer-term policy discussions. Well, it's easy to say that's true, but I'm more optimistic than that, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Imagine a politician, whether he or she is Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter, who came in and said, look, I want everybody to be in the economic boat, and I'm going to do everything I can for every individual in this country to be prepared to work in the world that is and will be, and to help communities that have been left behind in that. That doesn't strike me as a political loser. Would it cost money? Yes, but we're spending money now on alternative forms of social insurance. We need to decide as a country, what do we want? And if we want mass participation and mass flourishing, we need to change policy to get it. Well, what you're saying really resonates with sort of long-term themes of what we call Catholic social teaching. Uh, Economic participation is a bedrock principle. The importance of social insurance, the dignity of work and the dignity of workers at all levels and types of work the recognition that markets can create wealth, but they need to be regulated so that people have appropriate access to uh, social insurance, but there's also a social safety net as well. So a lot of these themes that you're raising, the wall and the bridge, are are themes that are consistent with long-term principles of Catholic social thought. Have you, in your work, have you really engaged any of the great papal and social encyclicals or the Catholic social tradition more generally? Well, yes, in the sense of the dignity of work and workers, Much of what I'm talking about here, almost all of it in the Wall and the Bridge book, is really about the fundamental dignity of work. And that could be whether you're a top professional or whether you're somebody more in the middle of an organization. All work is important. What I view as one form of wall is an argument one sometimes hears from the left that you could simply pension people off if they don't fit into the economy. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be referred to as a transition cost or Mm -hmm. somebody who really didn't have anything to offer the economy. Who wants that? That can't be mass flourishing. We have a responsibility to connect everybody to work. And just individuals, of course, have to have agency, but public policy has to help them too. Would you connect proposals for a universal basic income to that sort of uh, just desire to pension people off and just, you know, satiate them with a, you know, a basic income and not really connect and as use that as an excuse not to do some of the more ambitious things that you're talking about connecting them to actual work and a real yeah. safety net. I, I, I agree with that. I would not support universal basic income for that reason. I sometimes hear people say, well, it would encourage uh, artists in Greenwich Village. I, I don't think what's holding back most of the disrupted folks in America is wanting to be an artist in Greenwich Village. I, I think the real issue is connecting to work. And I think people feel better about themselves when they're connected to a work that can bring them earn success and dignity. The problem is with disruption, sometimes that can be hard to do. Sometimes we have to invest and reinvest in people. But as a society, you know, when when you took Econ 101, 
My guess is the professor said, look, you know, for technological change and globalization, they make us better off, but some people will lose. And then the professor would say, but of course the gainers could compensate the losers. We haven't been. In your teaser article for your new book, The Wall and the Bridge, that I read in National Affairs, you note that some economists and free market proponents have dismissed some of these downsides of uh, the disruptions and have failed to appreciate their scope and character. Why is that, do you think? Well, you have to notice, you know, in the financial crisis, the Queen of England, in my mind, asked the most perceptive question when she went to the London School of Economics and said, why, why did nobody notice? How could you, a room full of smart people, economists, miss something this big? You know, globalization and technological change have been disrupting us for several decades. It's nothing new. And by the way, that disruption has led to many good things. But economists have been too quick to celebrate average gains without thinking about people left behind. The good news is the average gains are so large, we can fix this, we can help people, but it requires noticing them. I hate to say it, but people need to get out more often. You know, at Columbia, I've taken MBA students to places in the heartland of this country that have been affected by disruption so they can see firsthand and talk to business people, talk to people. I think business people, I think economists, I think our political leaders need to make more of a habit. You know, one of the things that strikes me is the way in which, despite being a professional of the quote, dismal science economics, you speak and use a lot of normative terms and make a lot of normative claims. And I think that's absolutely appropriate, talking about the dignity of work, for example. Is is the problem that you've diagnosed with economists, is it the fact that they've perhaps fallen into a type of scientism with regard to economic science is purely taking an empiricist worldview where the only thing we can really know is what our forecasts tell us? Or is that is that not the problem? Am I missing something there? Yeah, it, it's possible, but to be charitable, perhaps myself and, and other economists, I think the real issue is simply not noticing, not taking a hard look at the flip side. Obviously, economists or business people generally would tell you they know there's this flip side to growth and innovation, the flip side being disruption and change, but they really hadn't been consonant with it. And I think the neoliberal perspective, which dominates modern economics and which I broadly share, you know, takes for granted a lot of these things and really celebrates average gains without looking at distributional consequences. And again, I go back to Smith, if the goal is mass participation, mass flourishing, that noticing is something we must do. There's the old the old saw about the social sciences. It works great in theory, but how does it work in reality? And, and the prescription to sort of get out more uh, is fantastic. Pope Francis calls this the culture of encounter, is encountering people in social situations that are different than our own and uh, just broadening our horizons. So that's um, very well taken. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Hubbard. Simone Weil, the philosopher, she talked about the importance of being rooted and that uprooting people from their homes, workplaces, and cultures is very disorienting. Is modern economics and sort of the policymaking, policymaker class generally and their sympathies, are they too much in their methods, too Pollyannish about the ability for people to adjust to the disruptions of the modern economy? Or do you think that some of the uh, concerns about uprootedness are over- are overstated. I mean, if you grow up in Youngstown, Ohio, and the steel mills leave, uh, well, well, get some new training and learn to code. <laughs> you know, the old the joke that's, you know, learn, just learn to code. They can learn to code. 
you know, so what's the, what's the balance there between the expectations people should have about being able to live their life rooted in a place and the reality of the benefits and trade-offs of modern economic life and the disruptions that do occur? Great question. I think economists are starting to look more at place-based aid. You know, in, in past decades, I think many economists would have said, look, we need to bring people to where jobs are. This isn't an issue. We shouldn't care about areas. We should care about individuals. You know, the same year Hayek wrote his famous book, The Road to Serfdom, Carl Polanyi, who wasn't an economist, but a sociologist writing in economics, wrote The Great Transformation mm -hmm. about the power of community and connection. Mobility is not, geographic mobility is not as high in America as many people would like to imagine. We have this go West young man mentality about people leaving all the time. That's not really what's happening. So I think we do need to have place-based aid that focuses on business development and on training. In the book, I talk about putting applied research centers around the country, again, the community college block grants, aid to areas where they've had long-term job distress. I think that is very important. And the good news is I think economists are getting there. A lot of the work I talk about in the book is by relatively well-known economists in recent years. In light of that, what's the, what's the balance between the role that the state should play in some of these programs and reforms that you're talking about in the federal government? Where is the locus of that in light of the importance of place-based aid and, and some of those other issues, community colleges, things like that? Is this largely a state-based thing where some innovation can be done and we can learn from each other in a sort of federalism model? Or is this more of a, something that needs to happen at the federal level? I think it's for federalism. I and mean, one of the lessons we learned from the land-grant colleges and from the GI Bill was that state and regional adaptation was very, very important. The federal government probably needs to be the funder. That's why in the book I recommend a federal block grant for community colleges subject to performance and also a federal block grant for place-based aid. But states and local areas would have to fine-tune this. The truth is there's a lot we can learn there. You know, you mentioned Youngstown, which has struggled, but you could look at case studies, as I do in the book, of the state of Massachusetts, which from the 1920s through the 1960s reinvented itself. They didn't try to bring mills back to Massachusetts. They tried to remake the state. Pittsburgh did the same thing. And I think when we look around the country, we will find episodes of success from which we can learn. Federalism has a huge amount to teach us if we let it. We're seeing right now perhaps an exercise in federalism with large outflows and inflows among certain states. And, and a lot of that is inflows into states that don't traditionally aren't traditionally perceived as having, you know, strong social safety nets, but perhaps more in the way of economic opportunity. What do you see happening with this, uh, the, the great relocation that's occurring right now in the United States, huge outflows out of uh, California, for example, even outflows here in Minnesota, but then inflows uh, to places like Florida and Texas. Well, it's certainly true that people will move to where they see opportunity, to policy environments that they're more consonant with. I think from a federal level, there's a way to level up, if you will, social insurance by strengthening support for work. You know, we have a, a program called the Earned Income Tax Credit that was designed as a work support program, but frankly is as much as anything else, a family support program. Mm -hmm. We need to strengthen it, particularly for younger childless workers. And by leveling up work supports, 
And by providing federal block grants, even if people move around for opportunity, they can still access a safety net that connects them to work. Why particularly childless workers with fewer economic strains on their budget? Why, why particularly childless workers getting more of a piece of the earned income tax credit? We've done just that here in Minnesota with an expansion of what we call the working family credit, but we're expanding it to childless households. Why do you think that's a value add? Well, I think, first of all, it needs to be expanded everywhere. The reason I said childless is that's where the benefit is the least generous. And when I think of a canonical younger person starting out in the labor market, he or she may well be unmarried or or childless. My perspective is we want people climbing whatever ladder they can and want to climb. You can't climb a ladder you're not on. And the way to connect people to that ladder is a support for low-wage work. So the reason I think childless workers deserve even more support is because they're getting the least now. But frankly, the earned income tax credit needs to be strengthened across the board. An alternative is to uh, basically subsidize labor demand, as my colleague and Nobel laureate Ned Phelps uh, has suggested in, in the European setting. But we have an EITC. Let's make it work. You know, one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now is the great resignation. And normally when we talk about combating poverty, we, we take two strategies, either job creation and job growth or social safety net. It seems, though, that there are plenty of jobs out there with all the help wanted signs at all levels, not just service industries, but it's also even management, government, the professions, et cetera, et cetera. But also the social safety net seems to be pretty ample and including things like I talked about earlier, the child benefit grants and things like that. So what's going on with the great resignation or is it too early to tell? I think it's probably too early to tell. You know, I I know it sounds good to talk about a great resignation, but frankly, people historically, if you look at data, quit jobs in times when jobs are plentiful and growth opportunities are there and can take their time to search. We know that households did get a buffer from stimulus payments during the pandemic and from increased support. So I think we will get to a position where people evolve to a different mix of jobs. I don't really foresee a greater set of the population being disengaged from work. It may be true that some older individuals retired earlier than they might have thought about before, but by and large, our task is the same as it has been to connect people to meaningful work. What an individual decides that is for him or her may change, but I don't think we're going to see a long-term great resignation. Dr. Hubbard, I'd be, wouldn't be doing our listeners a service if I didn't ask you about your service on the Council of Economic Advisors. What function does that play in terms of advising the president on economic matters? How does that, what does that look like? What do you do as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors? It's a great question. It's a consulting firm with one client, the president. It's a very small staff. It's an agency probably most of your listeners haven't even heard of. Yet it plays a big role in trying to help the president think about economic policy and importantly think about things not to do. For everything you hear about a policy that did happen, trust me, in Washington, there are 20 bad ideas that went away and the council really helps with that. So I think it's an amazing organization where uh, academic economists, sometimes economists from the business community as well, come in and help advise the White House on on, uh, economic policy. I I found it a very, very formative and valuable experience. And I always believe that an opportunity to serve is valuable. 
Dr. Hubbard, one last question for you. What, what else uh, about your book or The Wall and the Bridge did we not cover that you'd want to share with our listeners? Some key themes or ideas or maybe some prescriptions that we can look at from a public policy standpoint? Well, I think a couple of things. You, you asked great questions. And I, I think it really is remembering that the Adam Smith of the wealth of nations is also the Adam Smith of the theory of moral sentiments, meaning mm-hmm. economists have to wrap moral thought and economics together. They're, they're really not different uh, subjects. The second is to be optimistic. The fact that politicians are centered on beating each other, other up over walls doesn't mean somebody can't enter with a bridge. And I'm optimistic in the 2024 campaign. I don't know who it will be. I don't know if it's a Democrat or Republican, but I think that approach is there. Dr. Hubbard, where can people go to learn more about your work and find your book, The Wall and the Bridge? Well, The Wall and the Bridge has just come out from Yale University Press. If you want mass late Christmas gifts, please go out and buy it. And more importantly, read it. Uh, And my work generally is on my website at glennhubbard.net. Wonderful. Dr. Glenn Hubbard, thanks so much for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. My pleasure. Blessings on your work. And we'll be back in a moment with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder program where we help you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and now it's time to look at our action item for the week. Kit, what do you have for us? Yeah, so this week we have actually a reminder that it's now time to get registered for the Minnesota Catholic Conference's Catholic Advocacy Network. Because this is the second year of the biennium, the session is shorter, which makes it all the more important that you get registered now so that we can send you action alerts as soon as possible at key times on key pieces of legislation so that you can reach out to your legislators at just the right time with all the right words. We'll provide you a great message. We also give you the opportunity to call them or to send them a video message that you can personalize and let them know what you're thinking on these key pieces of legislation. So if you're not a member yet of CAN, the Catholic Advocacy Network, go to mncatholic.org forward slash join. And if you are already a CAN member, that's great. We want you to go check out the new website and we want you to update your profile. Let us know what parish you attend and we'll get you connected with other Catholic Advocacy Network members in your parish and in your legislative district. And let us know what advocacy areas you're most interested in. What are you passionate about? Is it life and bioethics, porn vulnerable or education? Maybe it's migration. We have lots of different areas and we wanna get you connected to bills that really interest you. So. Make sure to join today. It's mncatholic.org forward slash join. And Jason, earlier I mentioned the word biennium. I know that's not a typical everyday word for a lot of our listeners. Can you maybe explain to our listeners what that means and what sort of work is typically done in the second half of the legislature? So the biennium refers to the two-year legislative cycle um, that we have here in Minnesota. So we elect uh, our House members, for example, in the even years, and they're elected for a two-year term, a two-year biennium. Typically, the work of the first year is about creating a state budget, and that um, encompasses most of the work that legislators do. And then the second year is generally considered the policy 
and bonding year. And there will certainly be a discussion about bonding projects. Bonding is for building, but also some policy fixes as well. It'll, it's typically a shorter session than the first year because legislators want to hit the campaign trail and get back out into their districts and meet people. So that's that's it in a nutshell. But as Kit, you said so well, we're looking for CAN members, new CAN members, and, and strengthening the profiles of the existing CAN members so we can tailor messages to them that they're most interested in. We're looking for CAN doers. Politics is done and made by those who show up. So we believe that you can, and uh, we want to get you engaged and speaking to your legislators because it's, again, about showing up and being a resource to them and sharing with your legislators what you they, you think about important issues and how they best can serve the community. So being a part of the Catholic Advocacy Network is so very important. Wonderful. We're looking forward to having lots of new can-doers in our network. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. If you're listening on the radio, make sure to also check us out on your favorite podcast app or now on our YouTube channel where we keep all of our extended conversations There's not always time in just a half hour radio program. So make sure to check that out and click subscribe when you're there to be notified of the latest episodes. And you can leave us a comment or question or send us your show ideas. Our email address is show at mncatholic.org. And remember, you can catch any of our past episodes by going to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and more ways you can build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kids of Peniac of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.